hello, this is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. In this episode, we're going to talk about the safety of systemic steroids. Glucocorticoids are used for a wide variety of indications and can be administered topically, used as an intranasal spray, inhaled, and even given rectally. Luckily, when administered in these ways, systemic absorption is relatively low. But when taken orally or given by injection, there are substantial systemic effects that often lead to a number of adverse effects. First are the short-term harms like electrolyte abnormalities, hypertension, hyperglycemia, pancreatitis, and neuropsychological effects like the so-called steroid rage. And then there are a litany of long-term consequences, including osteoporosis, aseptic joint necrosis, adrenal insufficiency, growth suppression, peptic ulcers, hepatic injury, and a number of ophthalmological effects. So for these reasons, we all learned in our pharmacology and therapeutic classes that whenever a steroid is used systemically, particularly, we should be using the lowest possible dose for the shortest period of time. And ostensibly, doing so would avoid most of these potential harms. And I think in adults, we have pretty good evidence that a short course of corticosteroids won't lead to adrenal insufficiency or osteoporosis or cataracts. But what about kids? We use steroid bursts all of the time in kids who, for example, have a severe asthma exacerbation or a severe reaction to poison ivy. Do we know with certainty that these short courses are truly safe for kids? Well, a recent study published in JAMA Pediatrics tried to answer this important question, and here to discuss the results of the study and its implications in practice are Dr. Irene Ruiz and Dr. Christine Parboni from the University of Maryland. Dr. Ruiz is a PGY2 Pediatrics Pharmacy Practice Resident, and Dr. Parboni is a Pediatric Clinical Specialist at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore and on faculty across the street at the School of Pharmacy. Both Irene and Christine are first-time contributors to iFormerX and actually first-time podcast listeners in the past few months. And it's great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast today. Welcome. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to talk through this article with you. Yes, we are definitely happy to be here as first-timers and excited to bring some pediatric content to the podcast. So, Christine, I'm going to ask you this first question before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. Can you um, give us a general sense of how often steroids are given to infants and children? What are some of the most common reasons why they're used? And when they are used systemically, what's considered a, quote, safe dose? And uh, finally, what kinds of side effects are we most worried about in kids? Surely cataracts? Don't happen very often in kids, but perhaps that's something I really should be looking out for. You're right, Stuart. Cataracts are not a common occurrence in children. They have a rate of about one per 10,000 children per year. 
I will note that increased intraocular pressure, glaucoma, and cataracts have been reported in pediatric patients, but that's typically associated with steroid eye drops or other ophthalmic formulations um, versus what we're talking about with oral systemic corticosteroids. So let's start off with some of the basics, as you mentioned. Steroid prescriptions in children are common with prednisone or prednisolone typically ranking in the top 10 of the most commonly prescribed medications in children. Also in the top 10 is another formulation of steroid, fluticasone, and that could be either the inhaled form or the intranasal form. And not top 10 necessarily, but rounding out maybe in the top 30 are other steroid formulations like uh, budesonide and Mometazone as both inhaled or intranasal steroids, as well as some of the topical formulations like hydrocortisone and triamcinolone. So all of those are, are very common prescriptions in pediatric patients. In children, the most common indication for steroids is really asthma, uh, as you mentioned earlier. And we use inhaled corticosteroids to prevent or control their asthma symptoms and then systemic corticosteroids for their asthma exacerbations. Another common indication is allergic rhinitis, where again, we're using intranasal steroids to prevent that runny nose symptoms and that postnasal drip that we might have with our allergies. And then rounding out that ATOP triad is atopic dermatitis or eczema, which actually affects a pretty large portion of the population and is also treated with topical steroids as well as can be treated with systemic steroids for severe disease or if they have flare-ups. So you'll notice with these three disease states that we usually try to use those non-systemic steroids first as much as possible to avoid the side effects that can occur with systemic steroids. And we usually only use those systemic steroids when they have an acute exacerbation or they have really severe disease. We can also use systemic corticosteroids for other respiratory disorders like croup in infants, and then in neonates with bronchopulmonary dysplasia, they'll often get a course of steroids. We use them for long-term for other disease states like inflammatory and autoimmune disorders like inflammatory bowel disease, juvenile idiopathic arthritis or renal diseases, um, as well as in patients with neuromuscular diseases like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, organ transplantation, and leukemia, as well as other cancer diagnoses. So large number of indications for steroids and both for short and long-term courses. As far as dosing goes, while the dosing for all these indications may vary, I'd say the most common dose for most of these indications is somewhere between one to two milligrams per kilo per day of prednisone or prednisolone, with a maximum dose often set at 60 milligrams per day, although that can also vary with the indication. And then uh, you asked about side effects. So as far as adverse effects in children, we often see difficulty sleeping, agitation, increased appetite, uh, especially with those short-term bursts. If a patient is admitted to the hospital, we might be doing more monitoring. We'll also see hyperglycemia and hypertension, as you mentioned. We might see some GI side effects, although that's something we're probably worried about but don't necessarily often see or don't document. With long-term use, we also are worried about adrenal suppression, and that can happen more commonly in children, particularly younger children, and has a higher mortality than might be seen in the adult population. And then again, for longer courses of steroids, we do worry about things like bone growth and bone development. And growth suppression, including a delay in growth in puberty, have been documented with oral corticosteroid use and with particularly with an increased risk seen in those with higher doses and longer courses of steroids. Cushingoid appearance is also commonly seen with long-term use. 
So I think for the most part, clinicians are less concerned about the risk of all of these adverse effects I mentioned with those short bursts of corticosteroids, which is why they're just so often used in a variety of indications. I think this hasn't been looked to in a real depth, and so that's what makes this article so interesting. So Irene, let's talk about the research paper you reviewed in your commentary. The paper is entitled Association of Oral Corticosteroid Bursts with Severe Adverse Events in Children, which was published in JAMA Pediatrics in July 2021. And we provide a link to that original paper on the iFormerX website. But can you give us a brief overview of the study methods and the results? So this study was conducted in Taiwan, and they received their patient population from the National Health Insurance Program database. The study was run over um, a couple years time frame from January 1st, 2013 to December 31st, 2017. And it specifically looked at four different adverse effects, gastrointestinal bleeding, sepsis, pneumonia, and glaucoma, and it evaluated these adverse effects in pediatric patients less than 18 years old who had received a short course of corticosteroids, and they defined the short course as less than 14 days of steroids. Patients who received more than one of these corticosteroid bursts had a prescription for corticosteroids more than 14 days or had any congenital anomalies or catastrophic illnesses were excluded from the analysis. What was interesting about the study is patients served as their own control, meaning after patients were identified as receiving a corticosteroid burst, their risk for each of those four adverse effects of GI bleeding, sepsis, pneumonia, and glaucoma, they were looked at 90 days before they received the steroids, and then their risk was compared to two different time frames, 5 to 30 days, and then also 31 to 90 days after the steroid burst was completed. So when looking at each of these specific adverse effects, the incidence rate of GI bleeding and pneumonia was significantly higher in both of these time frames and those who received a corticosteroid burst. The incidence of sepsis was actually only higher in that first time frame of 5 to 30 days after the steroid exposure. The incidence of glaucoma was not significant in either of these time frames, so kind of alleviating that concern there. And this study also looked at a longer observation period of up to 180 days after that corticosteroid exposure, and those results correlate pretty strongly to the 5 to 30 days and the 31 to 90 day time frame. So, Irene, there's a few things about this study that struck me. Uh, First is the sheer number of participants or the number of uh, cases that they identified in the study, which was over four and a half million kids. And nearly a quarter of them were prescribed a steroid burst uh, during that study period. Second is the fact that the study was conducted in Taiwan. Now, I'm wondering if whether these two facts are strengths or weaknesses. Um, a very large study has enough power to detect a very small difference in outcomes, but the difference might not be clinically meaningful. On the other hand, some health systems don't have the capability of capturing all the data because they don't have complete electronic health records, or patients seek care from lots of different providers. And in the United States, this is a major problem, I think, with this kind of electronic health record research. But is this true in Taiwan? So what are your thoughts about the internal validity of the study, and can the results be applied to our patients in North America? So Christine and I had extensive conversations about this article, and we definitely echo some of your thoughts. 
To start off with, the study did evaluate a really large sample size, which we both consider a big plus of this article. Um, however, like you said, Stuart, these patients were identified using medical claims records and prescription databases, which have several limitations. Um, some important ones to know is the potential for errors encoding the information into the database. The database also cannot account for lifestyle changes that may contribute to the risk of adverse effects. And lastly, the important thing to pharmacists, medication adherence also cannot be confirmed with some of these databases. Additionally, the medical claims records cannot provide patient-specific demographics, the specific ones being certain comorbidities like respiratory illnesses or gastrointestinal disorders that could explain why this patient population was at greater risk for these adverse effects that we saw. All of these limitations can potentially cause the results to be misinterpreted, so I think that's things to keep in mind as you're looking at the results. However, I do think the study did have several strengths. Besides the large sample size, the patient served as a, self con as a self control, which I believe identifies the true significance of adverse effects associated with corticosteroid use as they were comparing themselves um, and their own risk factors. The authors also conducted extensive statistical analysis to investigate the role of covariates and co-founders, and I also really appreciated how they conducted a secondary analysis to expand the inclusion criteria to look at that longer observation period. I thought this was especially important as the secondary analysis did highlight that the risk of GI bleeding and pneumonia persisted up to six months after exposure to a short course of corticosteroids, so really highlighting the true incidence and how we should be concerned um, and be aware of the risk that can happen with even a short course of steroids. So, Christine, these data raise, I think, some legitimate concerns about the use of systemic corticosteroids, even when they're given for just a short burst. If I were a parent of a child who was prescribed a dexamethasone dose pack, for example, and if I read this study, I might think twice about allowing my son or daughter to take it. Are these fears unfounded? How do we put these data into context and enable parents, and not only parents, but kids too, to make a well-informed decision about using a systemic steroid burst? And are there any alternative therapies that we should be routinely offering in place of steroid bursts? Great question, Stuart. As a parent myself who has a child with asthma and another child with migraines who has been prescribed a steroid burst, um, I found myself in this exact situation. And I think after reading this, um, I do think it's prudent to pause and really consider the risks and the benefits of a short course of steroids. The overall incidence rates of these events was low in the study. And while there was an association of adverse effects with steroid use, we we can't overall determine that, yes, the steroids were actually the cause of these events, you know, because we can't account for some of those underlying illnesses um, or other risk factors. So the data isn't really as, as clear cut as we would like it to be. I would say for a child with an acute asthma exacerbation that isn't responding to their rescue inhaler, I would absolutely give them steroids to treat their exacerbation as we have clear evidence that steroids are effective and essential uh, for that indication uh, to treat their exacerbation. Where I do have some hesitancy in using steroids is in those indications where it's not necessarily backed by the evidence. So I was quite surprised to see that they had such a high incidence of use in 
indications like bronchitis, sinusitis, and other upper respiratory tract infections, as well as allergic rhinitis, where there's really a lack of evidence demonstrating benefits for steroids. And in some cases, the clinical guidelines actually recommend against the use of steroids in those cases. I think we should still maintain the same approach, as you mentioned previously, of of avoiding systemic steroids when possible and really using those alternative preparations depending on the disease state. So uh, using topical corticosteroids, using inhaled or intranasal to really limit the systemic exposure as much as possible. We should use those agents and titrate up in potency as needed. And in those cases where there is potential benefit for systemic steroid bursts, where there is some data, we should really attempt to use the lowest possible dose and shortest course possible to effectively treat the disease state while minimizing the risks of some of these adverse effects that were seen in this study, as well as the other adverse effects that we know occur with steroids. Well, Christine, Irene, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the use of short courses of corticosteroids in infants and children and the potential harms that they might have. It's clear from your comments that we need to be judicious about when we use steroids because they are not risk-free. And whenever possible, we should only use them in times and in indications where we have clear evidence of their benefit. Well, tell us what you think. Should we be more cautious, more reticent about using systemic steroids? And how do we put the findings of this study into context for our patients and our parents when they have questions or concerns? Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. So if you're not already a member, I encourage you to sign up today. Any health professional or health professions student can join iFormerX. It's free. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn continuing education and recertification credit. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer this program and the associated commentary for board recertification credit. So click on the link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to give a big shout out to the folks at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy's business office, Barbara, Joanna, Elizabeth, who help us keep track of the donations we receive and who help us pay our bills. The University of Mississippi and the School of Pharmacy support our mission in many, many ways. They don't charge us overhead and, well, frankly, they pay my salary. However, we do rely on the support from donors who make financial contributions that help defray the cost of the technology and web hosting and other fees that we incur. So your contributions make this community of practice possible. If iFormerX has been a valuable tool for you, please click on the donate link found in the navigation bar on our website to make a tax-deductible gift. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.